Amen. Well, I hope that we have come, as um, Peter wrote there, as um, those who long for the spiritual milk of the Word of God. Because that's what we do week in and week out, as we come to learn of God's truth, that we might apply His truth and His Word to our lives. If you have a Bible, please open with me one final time to the book of Galatians. Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, we have spent the better part of the last year looking at this letter, and we come to its conclusion today. Um, Lord willing, I think we're going to move into 1 Peter in the weeks ahead, but today we focus on this last portion of Galatians chapter 6. We'll look at verses 11 through 18. We'll kind of keep this really concluding section together, and so we'll have to look at a little bit of a higher level overview than, than you might with some of the truths that are here, but we want to keep this conclusion as a unit of thought. Uh, the title for the message today is True Disciples of Christ. True Disciples of Christ, because that is to whom Paul is writing. He's writing to the true disciples and urging and exhorting them to stand firm in the faith. These concluding paragraphs really have a, a, a lot of weight to them. Paul almost recounts some of, the, some of the more important, some of the more forceful truths that he has addressed in this letter. And so I hope and pray that, that we're able to gather some of that weight as he pulls together six chapters of Scripture into these short verses. So again, let's look at Galatians 6, 11 through 18. Let's read our text, and then we need to ask the Lord's help and blessing in our time. This is the word of the living God. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves. But they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Now let's go before his throne of grace. Father, we come to you now in complete and utter desperation. For whatever we've come in, in hopes or in attempts of accomplishing in our own strength, Lord, will fail completely. There will be no fruit if we strive in our own strength. But Lord, as we 
come before you now. We ask that in the strength of your spirit, you would work and move mightily in us and among us today. Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts. Lord, help us to put away sin, to to put away all malice and falsehood and deceit and hypocrisy so that we might rightfully long for the truth of the word. Lord, for we who are your children have surely tasted of your kindness. And so, Lord, may we know more of that kindness today. Lord, would you show us Christ, and would you show us how to live in light of what Christ has done and accomplished for us? Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are ready to receive and respond to your truth? Lord, the act of preaching is an act of worship, whereby we are worshiping you through the revealing and the revelation of your truth. So, Lord, may we continue to worship you now in spirit and in truth. May we worship you with pure and humble hearts. May we depend fully upon your spirit to be at work in us. Lord, would you write your word upon our hearts? Would you strengthen us in our battle against sin? Would you deepen our fellowship and bonds together? And would you, Lord, make Christ all the more lovely to us today? And in all these things, Lord, we desire that you and you alone would receive all honor and glory and praise. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So to sum up the text before us today, to sum up Paul's kind of chief intent in this summary, and to apply that directly to ourselves, I would offer the following exhortation. We are to prove ourselves to be disciples of Christ. We are to prove ourselves to be new creations in Christ by hoping in faith alone rather than hoping in the strength that our flesh can muster. We must be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ as we, re- as we reject and as we resist demonic falsehood and as we resist the desires of the flesh. And dear friends, we do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we must, in this text, seek to see how we can prove ourselves to be disciples of Christ. With such a sobering message, such a weighty message in his conclusion, you notice where Paul starts here, and it's kind of an odd thing. Verse 11, he says, See with what large letters I'm writing as I'm writing with my own hand. We don't know what difficulties, physical difficulties or limitations Paul was dealing with, but he wanted to make sure the Galatians knew that this was his writing, that he was writing to them on the authority of his apostleship as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is writing to them with the authority of being Holy Spirit-inspired. 
This letter is serious. Paul's concerns are very serious. He is concerned that these Galatians, these saints who he loved and had invested greatly in, that they were teetering on the brink of destruction because they were dealing with the falsehood of mingling works of the law with faith in order to gain and earn salvation. So this is an earnest letter, and this is an earnest conclusion. Paul's making clear this writing is his own. It's from the mind of the Spirit to the pen of Paul. It is the words of their father in the faith who is writing on behalf of the father of all faith, the Lord God himself. So Paul says, I write with my own hands. Now, hear these final closing exhortations. And that's how we're going to break down this text. There's going to be four exhortations that we can draw out from the verses before us. And again, we'll look at them kind of in a summary form because these are some rehashings of the things that we've looked at in much greater depth throughout this letter. So number one, firstly, Paul says, look out for the cowards. Be aware of those who are cowards and are not willing to suffer for Christ. Verse number 12, he said, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So really we want to zero in on about three descriptors of the Judaizers that Paul gives here as the exhortation that we draw from this is again to look out for those who are cowards. He begins by talking of those who are attacking the Galatians because they desire to make a good show in the flesh. They desire to receive the praise and the honor and the glory that comes from men. Paul says, really the, the English here is an accurate translation but from the Greek to the English, we lose a lot of the force with which Paul is writing here. These men are not just kind of ho-hum moving along desiring to, to make a good showing, but rather they are solely focused on the good showing and the results of a good showing in the flesh. Their focus is on the opinions of men. They both fear men and desire the approval and the praise and the honor of men. But what did Paul say at the beginning of this letter? Galatians 1 verse 10. He said, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? There you go, Mike. Or am I striving to please men? Paul continued. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul makes clear, if you seek to please men, if you fear men over fearing God... You cannot be a servant of Christ. But rather, you serve your own master, the master of your flesh, and the master of desiring the praise and the honor of men. So Paul says, these people desire only to make a good showing in the flesh. That is a primary mark of a coward who we must avoid. We must be aware of them and avoid their false teaching. What do these fleshly and carnal and man-pleasing Judaizers do? What marks their ministries? 
Paul says, they, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised. They try to convince you to be circumcised. Um, there are some renderings of this that would maybe indicate that this compelling is almost by force, by intimidation or scare tactic, but I don't think that really gets the idea that Paul is making here because when Paul uses this term throughout the New Testament, what he typically speaks of is a compelling by persuasion or a compelling by persistence. They continue this argument. They continue to beat the Galatians over the head to say, you must be circumcised or you are not in the faith. Yes, you have Christ, but you need to add to Christ or you are not truly in the faith. These Judaizers seek to use the brute force of constant argument, constant persuasion, constant discourse, to, and, and the art of dishonest, persuasive speech to lead these Galatians to do what they want to do. And this is familiar in our day, is it not? If you were to take a hard stand against specific actions with specific people, Oftentimes, what you're going to get is not a persuasive argument of the truth, but this type of brute force beats you over the head, beats you into submission until you relent and do what this other person wants to do. This is so common to our day. They, people seek to overwhelm you with the volume of arguments and with dishonest persuasion. There's a clear delineation a clear separation between the persuasion that we use when we try to persuade men by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to come to Christ for salvation and the persuasion that is marked by dishonesty and deceit. We can illustrate that. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, he said, Knowing the fear of the Lord... Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are manifest before God. Paul says, yes, we do try to persuade. We do compel men to come to Christ, but we do that because we fear God. We persuade people to come to Christ knowing that the Lord sees the depths of our hearts, and if there is a single impure motive in that, we are sinning against a most holy God. So yes, we do persuade men. We do persuade those around us, but we do so with and on the sole authority of the truth of God's word. So that's the contrast here. We see so clearly in Galatians 6.12 that these Judaizers feared men. They wanted to look good before men, and yet they still brought this compelling argument to the Galatians regarding the acts of following the law. But elsewhere, Paul says, no, that is not how we persuade. We fear God who sees and knows the heart, and then we persuade men with the glorious, glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These Judaizers are marked by deceitful and shameful motives. They're marked by fear. They're marked by cunning. But Paul would say, I'm marked by knowing Christ and desiring to make Christ known. 
Those shameful motives become all the more evident as we move to the end of verse 12. He says, they try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now again, this is strong language here that you may not um, easily catch in the English. Uh, you might be familiar in Scripture, there is, or in the Greek language even, there's what's called a, a hina clause. It's a, it's a Greek term that's typically translated as so that. And it means that what we're writing of is something that is an express and singular purpose. And so you could read that and think, okay, that's what Paul's saying. But there's two Greek words here. Firstly, the word that's translated simply is the word um, monos or monos, meaning singular. One, only, simply. So, so Paul is saying these people are so driven by their fear of persecution, that they will do anything to avoid being persecuted for the cross. This is the sole motive of their life. The sole driving factor of these people's lives and ministries is to avoid suffering, to fill up their bellies, to be, to be full of the goods and the pleasures of this life, and to avoid any hardship. These people obviously do not have the Galatians' best interest at heart. They obviously do not have the eternal good of the Galatians or the eternal glory of the Lord in mind. They are not seeking to do spiritual good to those whom they are seeking to influence. Rather, their God is their own belly. Their God is themselves, and they desire not to suffer. Now, if you're paying close enough attention, maybe you'll ask a question here. Why would the Judaizers be afraid of suffering for the cross? And this is incredibly important. Why would the Judaizers fear suffering for the cross? Think about what their argument has been as we've went through Galatians. The argument has not been that you must forsake Christ and only obey the law. Rather, these Judaizers mingled the falsehood of the law, of salvation by the law, with the truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They said, yes, you can have your Christ, but you also must take our law with you. So why did these Judaizers fear suffering for the cross of Christ? It's because they didn't denounce the cross of Christ. They did not reject Christ as Savior but they did reject his saving work. They were not going to reject the cross, and so they knew that if they did not go far enough with their bringing the law to bear in the lives of the Galatian believers, that when they go back to Jerusalem, they're going to be themselves run out of town. Why did you, you Judaizers, allow them to keep Christ? Why did you not denounce this man that we hated and crucified? Why did you not put all of that out from the Galatians and bring them to submission to the law. So why did they fear persecution? Because they used the truth as part of their message. They mingled the truth with error. And friends, that's where we have to be discerning today. That's where we have to be on guard today. That's where we have to look out for the cowards today. 
Because I can tell you there are many in evangelical circles who will let your soul go off on a trail that will lead you to heresy in a hurry for the sake of their own ministries or for the sake of pleasing a friend. I literally have firsthand accounts of these things where people will say, I can't stand up for this because what would it do to these people to whom I'm trying to minister? That doesn't cut it. We stand upon the truth. We don't fear the repercussions of what may happen when we stand on the truth, but we stand up for what God's Word says. Reject error. Reject those who peddle error and falsehood. Stand on the truth, dear friends, and look out for cowards. How might the Galatians be on guard against this? The second exhortation Paul gives then is to be aware of this contrast. Be aware of the contrast that is evident between the life and the ministry of Paul and the life and the ministry of the Judaizers. Look at verses 13 and 14. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be, Paul says, that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So really two significant contrasts here that Paul paints. Contrast between the sanctity, the holiness, the purity of life of Paul and the Judaizers and the contrast regarding the motive of their ministries. Two very distinct things that we see. The, Paul says that the Judaizers, that they, uh, they command you, they want you to be circumcised, but they don't even keep the law themselves. They, they use the law to help further their own agenda. Remember, he says that they're desirous to make a good showing in the flesh. These men have no desire for righteous living. They have a desire to live in such a way that they may prosper off of whatever it is that they are peddling. They don't care about pleasing God. They care about pleasing themselves. Calvin wrote of this about these deceivers. He said that Paul rather insinuates against them a charge of insincerity because except when it suited their own designs, they found themselves at liberty to despise the law. Except when these Judaizers needed the law to push an agenda, they hated it. They pushed it off. They threw it off of themselves, and they desired to live lawlessly. They desired freedom and liberty, as some would say. But when they needed the law to push their agenda, the agenda here of circumcision, they were the greatest law keepers that you could ever find. And these men feign a devotion to the law for the sake of manipulating others into submission to that very law that they themselves do not keep. So what's the contrast there? Look at verse 14. Paul says, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here comes the contrast. Through which... The world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. The Judaizers called for obedience to a law that they didn't 
keep themselves. Paul preached Christ, and then Paul practiced what he preached. Paul proclaimed devotion to Christ because of the devotion that Christ has for us, and then he lived out that proclamation. Paul said that through the cross of Christ, I am crucified to the world. The desires and the pleasures and the joys and the fulfillments of the world are gone to me. They have vanished. They are worthless to me because I am in Christ. Paul told the Philippians that he counted all things as as to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, his Lord. Paul was a man committed to Christ. He had counted the cost of discipleship. He had made the decision to die to himself daily and to pick up his cross every single day and follow Christ. That is the contrast as we consider this idea of looking out for the cowards. The contrast that we can see so clearly is in the sanctity and the holiness of the day-to-day living of so many of these people. Matthew Henry wrote about how Paul had experienced the power and the suffering of Christ in his ministry and miraculously through Christ revealing that to him. And Henry points out how that essentially weaned Paul off the the desire and, and weaned him off of the allure and the appeal of worldly things. Paul had this glimpse into what Christ had suffered because of his sin, and that glimpse of the suffering and the power of the cross caused Paul to desire to live in a way that pleased Christ. It was the suffering of Christ that gave, reason, gave Paul reason and even power and motive to desert the things of the world and devote himself to obedience. Ask this question, can you say the same thing? Do you, do you look to the cross of Christ and find there at Calvary the greatest source of joy, the, the greatest reason for devotion and obedience? Do you see your Savior hanging there with nails in his hands and feet, the crown of thorns, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he is bearing the wrath of God for your sins. Do you look to that cross and find yourself desiring to devote and give your life to Christ? If you don't, friend, let me tell you, you need to examine your soul. You need to go home today and get on your knees before the Lord God Almighty and beg him to grant you repentance leading to salvation. If you can consider the suffering of Christ at the cross and then that does not change you, that does not cause you to see your sin in a new light, it doesn't cause you to hate your sin and desire to live a holy life before the Lord, you need to examine yourself. And we can say that on the authority of Scripture, because salvation changes hearts. Salvation really doesn't just change hearts. It gives you a new heart, and we'll get to that in a few moments. 
So then regarding the motives in ministry, we said there's two contrasts, the lives and the motives in ministry. Regarding the motives in ministry, Paul says pointedly in verse 13 that the Judaizers desire for you to be circumcised. They don't keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. They desire to have you follow the law so that they can get some kind of honor in your following of the law. But what's the contrast there with Paul? He says, but may it never be, may it never be that I would boast, may it never be that I would boast in your flesh, your salvation, your good works. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's only desire was to know Christ and to make Christ known. That was not a desire that Paul mustered up in his own strength, to be sure. That was a desire that is the grace of God at work in Paul by the power of the Holy Spirit. So again, we can ask the question in way of application, is that truly my heart's desire? We can all say that, okay? We know that that is an easy statement to make. If we went around the room, each of you could repeat that to me, even the children. May it never be that I would boast except for in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We could all say that. But is that the true motive of your heart? Is that what drives you? The glory and the grace of God in the cross of Christ. Do you desire to make yourself known? Do you desire to live in such a way that people see your good works and think, man, that guy is a good person. That guy is disciplined. He, he is, a, is a good worker. He is a good church member. He's just an all-around good person. Is that your desire? Or do you desire to boast in the cross of Christ? The cross is a sign and a mark and an instrument of humility. So your boasting is in something that is humbling by its very nature. Do you boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? So this is the contrast that we see. The Judaizers look to gain earthly standing through the means of the law and bringing the law to bear on others. So they don't even keep the law themselves. Paul says, I only boast in the cross of Christ. And through that very cross, through that very person going to that cross, the world is crucified to me, and I am crucified to the desires of the world. So be aware, Paul says, of the contrasting life and ministries of those who only serve themselves in the life and ministry of the true slave of Christ. I was thinking last Wednesday, um, I guess a couple Wednesdays ago when we were doing our first week in the new study and Ferguson was talking about Paul's description of being in Christ and he's absolutely right that you, you look at Ephesians and you see that's what drove Paul. But one of the things that came to mind also was this idea of Paul being a slave of Christ. That's how Paul always introduced himself, a bondservant, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, be aware of the contrast between those who are slaves of themselves and those who are slaves to Christ. The picture you will see is, is one of devoted obedience contrasted against 
a life of self-centered hypocrisy. There is a third exhortation as we move forward into verses 15 and 16 where Paul would urge the Galatians to live as a new creation. Live as a new creation. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now, for the sake of time, we're going to have to narrow this down a whole lot. That's what I was talking about earlier. There's just not time to to dig out all that we could from here. But what Paul is saying is it's not what happens externally that matters. Circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. It's about the purity of your heart because you are a new creation. You will not have a pure heart if you are not regenerated by the Lord. If you've not experienced a new birth, you cannot be pure-hearted. It's not what we can do externally that carries any value in the Lord's courtroom. You can go to the Lord's judgment seat and you can claim any length of a list of good deeds that you would like. And if that's your only claim, your only merit to get into heaven, you will be condemned to hell for all eternity. It's not those external things. It's not circumcision. It's not uncircumcision. It's not reformed doctrine and reformed theology. It's not baptism. It's not how many books you've read. It's not how much scripture you can quote. It's not how much scripture you study each week that counts for anything. What counts in God's courtroom is that you are a new creation. What counts in God's courtroom is when you are there before the judgment seat and he says, by what means, by what merit should I allow you into heaven? And you say, most High and holy God, I have but one plea, and his name is Jesus Christ. I have but one hope, and it is because I have been washed clean by the blood poured out at Calvary's cross. That is what is of value in God's courtroom. Being a new creation, being, drawn back to Ferguson again, being in Christ. Then Paul continues on, moving to verse um, 16. He says that those who will walk by this rule, those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy will be upon them. Friends, it's not enough to give lip service to these commands. I think that's probably crystal clear. It's not enough just to say, yes, I'm saved by faith alone, and then you go out and live like a devil. Because faith, that is not accompanied by works, is dead faith. So it's not enough to give lip service to this and say, yes, I have Christ, I have Christ, I have Christ, but then there's zero evidence in your life. Faith and repentance go together. They go hand in hand. You cannot and you will not have one without the other. So we must walk by this rule. This rule, the word rule is an interesting word. It's the Greek word um, canon, K-A-N-O-N. It uh, was originally used to speak to essentially a ruler, a rod that was used to measure length. And so you can understand that definition pretty clearly right here. But there's another word that I think will help illustrate, uh, another definition that will help illustrate even better what Paul is trying to describe here. Vine's Dictionary 
says the term was also used to describe the beam of balance, a balance beam. We've all seen a gymnast on a balance beam, and this was a Greek word that would describe a similar thing. So you have this balance beam, and we are to walk, Paul says, by this rule, the rule of faith. You walk by this rule on this beam of balance. On one hand, you have lawlessness. On the other side, you have legalism, but you walk by this rule. That means you walk by the rule of faith and repentance. Because if there's no repentance, you're falling off on the side of lawlessness. And if there's something beyond faith that you say you must have, you've just fallen off to the side of legalism. You're not walking by the rule of faith. Paul says we must hold this line. We must walk according to the plumb line of the standard of God's word, of God's truth. We must also never lose sight of the fact as we consider this this straight line of faith that faith is revealed because we are a new creation. A new creation means that the old has passed away and new things have come. You have new desires. You have new motives. You live a new and transformed life. We could go on there, but we'll just... Stop right there on that point and look at the fourth exhortation. Paul, the fourth and final exhortation he gives in verse 17, and that is to suffer as a conqueror. Suffer as a conqueror. He writes, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Calvin would say of this that Paul now speaks with the voice of authority for restraining his adversaries. And he employs language which his, highly, his high rank fully authorized. We see that Paul is prepared to suffer as one who conquers. There is no attack. There is no resistance. There is no contradiction. There is no persecution that will overtake and overwhelm Paul. Really, in effect, what Paul says here is that from now on, no one can trouble me. Let no, he says, let no one trouble me. He says, nobody can bring trouble to me. Nobody can cause me to grow so fearful that I will walk away from and lose my salvation. Trials and tribulations will surely come. Difficulties Division, dissensions, feuds may be unrelenting. In our day, those who stand on truth will know all of those things on a regular basis. But Paul was ready to suffer. He was ready to face those things for the sake of Christ. Now, how and why was he ready to face those things? Because Paul had already suffered. Paul literally says, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Paul counted it a blessing and an honor to suffer for the sake of Christ. Why would I be worthy to suffer for so great a Savior? In Paul's day, a slave would often have um, his master's um, name or stamp either cut into his body so a scar would form 
or branded with a hot branding iron so that slave could be identified as belonging to that master. That's what a brand mark is in Paul's day. And Paul says, I already bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. And I think, friends, if you'll stay with me on this, I think that's a bit of a play on words. For Paul surely did. You know, Galatians is his earliest epistle, and he had still already suffered for the sake of Christ. And so those scars were still there, obviously. He, he did bear those physical marks on his body. But there's also a branding mark of the Lord that's not external. There's the branding mark of the Lord that we bear on our hearts, which is the seal of the Holy Spirit. When, when Paul says, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus, surely he has both of those things in mind, that yes, externally you can see that I have suffered, but internally you can see that I've suffered not for wrongdoing, but for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, because I am his, he is mine, and his spirit is within me. And because of these marks, Paul was eternally confident that he would conquer. He was eternally confident that, yes, the suffering would come, but he would remain, not because he has this great strength, but because Christ will hold him fast. So as we work our way to a long conclusion... We must be aware of this confident and victorious attitude in our Christian lives. As we seek to apply the truth in our lives, as we must do as followers of Christ, we must be aware that suffering will come and we face that hardship head on as those who are victors and overcomers in and because of Christ. To stand on the truth in our day will continue to lose popularity. It's not popular right now, and it will become less popular tomorrow and the next day and in the days and the weeks and the years to come. Evil men will go from bad to worse. But dear saints, dear friends, know that you bear on your body the brand marks of Jesus. You bear in your heart the Holy Spirit of God. If you are truly in Christ, you have that Spirit of God in you who is the seal, the guarantee of your salvation. It's that Spirit that tells you God will keep that inheritance and God will keep you until He calls you home. It's that Spirit that will strengthen and sustain and embolden and empower you as you face the promised opposition, as you face the promised trials and sufferings that will come, it is that Spirit of God inside of you that will cause you to be able to wake up every morning and declare, Lord, your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That comes because you have the Spirit of God living in your heart. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.16 that if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed but it's to glorify God in this name. If you suffer for the sake of being a follower of Christ, glorify the Lord that you are counted worthy to suffer. How do you glorify God in suffering? We'll chase this little trail 
then we'll work our way to wrapping up. How do you glorify God in suffering? James 5.11 says, We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. How do you glorify God in suffering? You endure to the end. You remain. You stand steadfast. You are immovable. You abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your striving and your toil is not in vain. You look at the example of Job and see one who stood strong under the greatest weight of the testing that really we've probably ever seen, ever, that has ever been recorded in the history of the world. He endured. He remained. It's often in this very suffering when you really come to know the Lord's goodness and his mercy and his compassion and his presence. At the end of the book of Job, as Job was reaching the end of this really lifelong trial that he had walked in, as he was communing and speaking with the Lord, Job 42, 5, he says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Before this trial, I had heard of you. But Job then concluded, but now my eye sees you. I had heard of you. I knew of you. I even knew you. Now I see you. You are here with me. You strengthen me. You sustain me. You press me on to the end. Paul says, you two saints suffer as a conqueror. Suffer as the one who bears on your body the brand marks of Jesus because you have his spirit in you. Know, friend, that you will be victorious. Fight sin. Fight against error. Fight against the demonic powers that are so prevalent, though they will lose eventually. Fight against those in this world. Stand firm upon the truth. Paul concludes, we don't want to ever treat any words of Scripture as as throwaway. In verse 18, he concludes, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. He's told them to walk by faith, by faith according to God's grace. He's told them to walk in the Spirit so they don't carry out the desires of the flesh. So in his conclusion, it's really masterful and perfect. He says, may the grace of the Lord be with your spirit. May God's grace be applied to your spirit through his spirit so that your faith will increase and remain. So as we end our study for now in this epistle may we take these truths and be prepared to stand firmly and boldly upon the truth of God's word for we remember in Galatians 1 Paul said that those who proclaim a gospel that has a a twist or a perversion on it are proclaiming something that is not really another gospel there is no other gospel There is but one gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is our hope. That is the truth on which we stand. That Jesus Christ came in the flesh, lived a perfect, sinless, holy life. He died on the cross. He took your punishment for your sins eternally in your place. He went to the grave, 
On the third day, he rose again. He now has ascended back to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the throne of the Most High. And what does he do there? He makes intercession. He pleads his blood on account for all of those for whom his blood was spilt. His blood was poured out for all who will be redeemed. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And the message of salvation is very simple. And that is the message that we must hold to. And that is that you come to that Christ, holding to that gospel, and you respond in faith alone. Faith that leads to repentance. You add nothing to it. You take nothing from it. You come and you throw yourself upon the grace of the Lord. And all who come to Christ in that way will be saved. That is the message that we hold to. That is the message that we proclaim. As we war against falsehood, dear friends, may we increase in our manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. May we make the Spirit of God known because we display the fruit of the Spirit in the way that we live. And all of this, friends, may our lives individually and corporately show all of these things for the glory of God alone. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we pray and we ask that you would write your truth upon our hearts. We ask that the word would be made clear to us, that we would respond with hearts of humility, hearts of gratitude, and hearts that are displayed by life that is transformed. Lord, may we look out and be aware of those who do not stand upon the truth. May we be aware of the contrast between those who serve you and those who serve themselves. May we live, Lord, as a new creation, for all who are in Christ are indeed a new creation. And Lord, may we suffer as those who one day will conquer fully and eternally because of your grace and because of your work in us. Lord, write your word upon our hearts and cause us to glorify you as we go our separate ways for um, this day. We pray that our worship, again, will have been pleasing and acceptable to you. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.